Most gracious, loving Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us such a beautiful day. Thank you for the rain. We praise your holy name for all these blessings that you have given us. We praise you to be able to gather here at this assembly during your Feast of Tabernacles. And we praise your holy name that we're able to come together and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ in its proper context and also the prophetic significance of this holiday as well. The seventh day being the thousand-year kingdom and the eighth day looking into eternity. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stir up the spirit that's within us today into a roaring fire, an inferno, that the words spoken may reach the ears of those that are hearing and that the ears of those that are hearing are open to hear your word. May I decrease and may you be ever increased. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to the last book, very last book of your Old Testament, right before the page in the middle. We're going to turn to the prophet Malachi. Malachi had a message for this country, for this people in this world in which we live. Because of our refusal to obey God, He is lifting His protection from this country. He is chastising us. He is taking us to the woodshed. And it is well deserved. Because this people is in rebellion against God. We see around us the proliferation of sexual immorality, gender fluidity, whatever that means, confusion, confusion, deep confusion within our people as to who they are or what they are. And we see a hatred and an indifference to family, to nation, and to your extended family, which is your race. We are subjected daily, hourly, monthly, and even to the second, to psychological warfare. Designed to break us down as a people, designed to weaken us and to bring us to our knees. And ultimately, the attempt is to try to make us disappear as a people. We live in a time of mass insanity, a time when people don't know what the truth is anymore, a time when they don't even know where to look for the truth in the pages of their Holy Bible. The thing that affects me the most is the dramatic rise in suicide among young white males. If you haven't looked at the CDC website to look at the statistics on self-inflicted harm 
done by our young men to themselves. If you take a look at that, you will get a stark awakening to the state of this country and of its people. But I'm not telling you anything new. People knew that this was happening. The men of our race knew that this was happening a long, long time ago. We have had folks warning us since the beginning of the book all the way to the end and throughout our history as to what would happen to our people. Even people who don't know who they are could see the signs of the coming of the destruction even in the early 20th century at a time when it was considered the end of the age. Imagine that! A hundred years ago they considered the end of the age then. The end of the world then. The fin de siècle in French as they call it. It was a fashionable trend in writing and in poetry. And I would like to share with you a poem that illustrates the understanding that they had even then, but I think applies even more so to our world now. It's called The Second Coming. Is anyone familiar with The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats? Written in 1919, he was nobody to be emulated, but he, like a broken clock, was, as they say, right at least twice. At least twice a day, right? So the second coming. The second coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed in everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of impassionate intensity. Just stopping right there, when you see, when you see the very worst, the very worst out in our streets protesting, destroying things, they're full of passion and intensity, while the very best, the very best of our people, lack all conviction. And I know that's not all of us, but it's enough of us. Continuing on. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming, hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun. It's moving its slow thighs while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare. And he continues on and on and on. But his prescription would not be the prescription of Jesus Christ as to how to remedy this. But he at least was able to see what was coming. What had already arrived even back then. Even back then. 
brothers and sisters, the rot had begun to creep in, creep in. How many of you are aware that between two-thirds and three-quarters of your Bible is prophecy? It's prophecy. And much of that prophecy, brother and sister, touches on the very time in which we live. You all are living in prophetic times. And this Bible, the Holy Bible that you have, is a book for today. This is a book for today. It's not some moldy old book that has nothing to do with the age in which we live. The Bible is a book for today. And the only ones who don't know it are the ones who don't knock the dust off of it to read it sometime. Open the Bible. Read your Bible. It applies to your life today. It applies to your people's past. And it applies to the posterity, your posterity, in the future. This book is more accurate than any of the blurbs or any of the headlines that you'll find on Fox News, Newsmax, dare I say MSNBC. This book, if you read it and you understand it and you pray to God for guidance and understanding, this book will bring you into understanding of your world in which you live. So with that being said, let's turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, and we'll begin at verse 1. And we begin, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it should leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Watch this. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. We've got Moses with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We have Moses with the law, the commandments, statutes, and judgments, and we have Elijah, prophecy. Keep these two in mind. And the last verse says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now let's go back and pull these verses apart and see what we can take out of them and what we can apply to our lives today. Verses 1 and 3. The day that cometh that shall burn like an oven. To whom does this apply? 
Who will be burned up in this oven? I would direct your attention to Obadiah chapter 18. And it reads, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. This is what's promised to the enemy. This is what's promised to the house of Esau, to the wicked, whom our Lord and Savior called the sons of the devil. That generation of vipers. You can also refer back to a very familiar parable that Jesus Christ had, the wheat and the tares of Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 and 30. And 36 and 40, uh, 43. We won't go through those today for the sake of time. But as we come down in Malachi chapter 2, we read, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings and shall go forth and grow up his calves of the stall. Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when He returns, when He comes back at His second advent, He will heal His people. This is a message of hope. He will heal His battered and bloodied people. He will soothe His people. He will protect His people their welfare will be attended to by our great and soon-coming King. Now, if we come down to verses 4 and 5, we're going to get into the real meat of what I want to speak to you about today. Verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 tells us to remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Moses. Moses. See, we have a dichotomy here between Moses in verse 4 and Elijah in verse 6. And my understanding is, is that Moses is associated with, and the Bible proves out that Moses is associated with the giving of God's law. The giving of the law, the statutes, and the judgments represents studiousness. It's a quality that is much needed in our people's studiousness. The law requires study. It requires understanding. You must be thorough in your understanding of the law. It is one of the witnesses. It's one of the witnesses to any truth that we're going to come across is God's law. Law also refers to the first five books of the Bible. Amen. First five books of the Bible. Sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible. The five books of Moses. Now in verse 5 and 6, we see Moses being contrasted with another sort of man. 
this Elijah to come. And in verse 5 we read, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I smite the earth with a curse. Elijah, Elijah is a stand-in symbol for the prophecy, for the prophetic gift. He's a stand-in for the prophets. His inspiration seems unstoppable. And many of you know that the Old Testament is often referred to as the law and the prophets. The entirety of your Old Testament in shorthand was often referred to as the law and the prophets. And when we establish any truth, we establish any truth from Scripture, we require two witnesses. Any judgment requires two witnesses. Prophecy and law working in union to establish God's truth and His judgments. This, knowing this, knowing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, was how Christ's sheep knew His voice. Because He spoke only that which the Father gave Him. They knew Him because He was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's the dual witness of the Old Testament. The dual witness of the Old Testament. How be it that some say that the law is done away with? Sad. Verse 6. Verse 6. And continuing speaking about Elijah. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The mission, the mission of a prophet is to return the heart of the children to their fathers. The hearts of the fathers to the children and all back to God. So what does this fathers, what does this children, how do we understand this? Does it mean literally the fathers and children? Yes. But there is a deeper meaning. There is a deeper meaning to this. Fathers can and often refer to ancestors. Children can and often refer to descendants. It's returning the love of the generations back towards each other. What division has been sown in this country between the generations? That older generations just don't understand. Younger generations, well, they're not worth anything. I'm serious. There may be a seed of truth to that, but... Should we, not seek, should we not seek to foster that unity between the generations? Amen. 
Should we not seek to foster that love of the children for the fathers and the fathers for the children? And to expand it even farther out, should we not love our brothers and sisters? Should we not love our family, our extended family, such as that that's gathered here today? We should love our people. We should love our race. It's not an ugly word, it just means our extended family. In a world of egoism, world of narcissism, and lack of love for our extended family, Elijah will prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ by returning the love of Israel, the love of Israel for their people. This message, this Anglo-Israel message is a part of that. Returning the love, returning the remembrance of the children to their ancestors. To Ephraim, to Manasseh, to Dan, to Naphtali, to Judah, to Reuben, to all the rest. Returning the love of the children to the fathers. So just who was... What was so special about this historical Elijah? Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll begin at verse 1, and we'll get a sense of the man Elijah. Let's set the stage a little bit. The two kingdoms had been split. We all know about that. This takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel. The king at the time is Ahab, a very weak and wicked man who was married to an even more wicked and blasphemous woman. And God called Elijah to confront, to confront Ahab. So let's, be, let's read verse 1, and we'll get a sense of Elijah the Tishbite. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Automatically we see right offhand that Elijah was a very bold man. Can you imagine any of you going to the Oval Office and standing in front of President Joe Biden and delivering him a message that for three years there will not be rain except by my word that God gives to me. They would probably haul you out as a crazy man. If they were feeling mean that day, they might hurt you. It wouldn't be Joe Biden himself, but it would be the hard men that he's got around him. It takes a lot of courage to stand before someone like that, especially in these days when they were very creative with the methods of torture that they used on people. 
It takes a lot of courage to stand before someone in authority like that and declare to them the Word of God. Elijah was full of the Spirit of God. He was bold in the Lord and the power of his might. And after he delivered the message to Ahab, God had Elijah hightail it out of there and hide in a cave by a stream. He was fed and he was sheltered until the stream dried up. God provided him with his food and with his water and with his shelter. Everything that he needed to live, brothers and sisters. And then Elijah sojourned with a widow woman. He performed miracles, among which was resurrecting her dead son. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to 1 Kings chapter 18. And we'll read the first two verses. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. I know, brothers and sisters, that there has been a drought here. It's been a drought here. But can you imagine three years of continual drought until the very stream that Elijah drank from dried up. The people are desperate. The king Ahab is desperate. They're all desperate by this point. And after these three years of drought, God once again calls Elijah to confront Ahab. Can you imagine not only confronting him the first time and telling him it's not going to rain? Go to the Oval Office in D.C. if you can even get in. And then return the second time after what you had prophesied to that wicked president had come true. Let's skip ahead a little bit. <clears throat> we're going to stay in chapter 18, but we're going to jump over to verse 17 and we're going to read about a showdown, most of which you are all familiar with. It's the showdown between Elijah and the Baal priests. Let me tell you, it was no showdown for our God. God just demonstrated His power. And Baal wasn't even there, because there is no, is no Baal. 1 Kings 18, chapter 17, or verse 17. And we'll read through verse 41. It's a lot of scripture, but I really want you to get what we're reading here today. And it came to pass when Elijah, or excuse me, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and hast followed Balim. 
Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty and the prophets of the groves four hundred which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of Jehovah. And the Elohim that answereth by fire, let him be Elohim. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, and put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to noon, came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. Mocked them. That's not outside of the realm of possibility. That's not outside of the realm of acceptability for the people of God to mock, mock the false gods of the heathen. Mocked them and said, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing. It's a polite way of saying he's in the restroom. Or he is in a journey or peradventure, he sleepeth and must be awaked. See, he's lambasting. He's making a fool and a mockery of their false religion. And brothers and sisters, we of Israel should do the same things. Mock their Baal priests. Mock their false religions. Mock their statues, their images. Mock the entire sham of it all. Amen. And in verse 28, And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Seems kind of strange, but in these false religions, the idea is to get your emotions hyped up, to get you into a hyped up state, fully emotional in order to call down your false god. And one way they would do it is they would cut themselves or they would burn themselves or use any of these other despicable ways of doing that. Verse 29, And it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the numbers of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel should be my name. 
And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it again the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. So we have four times three. Twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel. The camp is divided into four brigades. Four barrels of water. Four times three. Twelve tribes of Israel. And it came to pass in verse 36... That at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, let it be known that this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, and that this people may know that thou art Jehovah Elohim, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is the God. Jehovah, He is the Elohim. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kehon, and they slew them there, following the law of Moses. The unity of the prophetic gift with the witness of the law of Moses. They must work in concept, concert. They are two witnesses to the truth. Continuing in verse 41, our last verse. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up. Eat and drink, for there is a sound abundance of rain. Amen. Elijah, and the boldness, the gift that was granted to him by God, to stand boldly before the wicked king and before the people who had forgotten who they were, had forgotten their God, and more than that, began to worship false and pagan gods. Elijah was bold. Elijah challenged the false gods of the heathen, challenged the authority of the time, and by that witness was able to bring the people back to remembrance of who they are, back to remembrance of their God that they had forgotten. And in the process, he foreshadowed with the barrels of water, he foreshadowed the work of the second John the Baptist. The second Elijah, John the Baptist. He foreshadowed the work of the second Elijah in baptism. John the Baptist baptized Israelites and so Elijah foreshadows the work of John the Baptist who was to prepare the way for the Christ to come. 
Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she have received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. We know that this refers to the mission of that second Elijah of John the Baptist. And the work that he performed in preparing the way even was born six months before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And determining the birth date of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as being at the time of tabernacles can be calculated by determining when John the Baptist was born. Amen. Based on the course of Abijah. Amen. Yes, John the Baptist was this Elijah to come. He was this second Elijah. Jesus informed his disciples that John was Elijah. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. But when the Pharisees confronted John, John the Baptist about this, he denied being the Elijah to come, according to John chapter 1, verse 21. So we seem to have an impasse here. Was John the Elijah to come or was he not? We seem to get two answers. Is it really an impasse? Prophecy is often dual, cyclical, or repeating in nature. Much of the prophecy about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ refers to His first advent and His second advent without distinguishing between the two. He will fulfill every bit of it as He has the previous parts. It's the same thing with the prophecy about the Elijah to come. We know that Jesus Christ had His first advent and John the Baptist prepared the way for that first advent But brother, sister, our Lord and Jesus Christ is going to return. There's going to be a second advent. And according to the words of Malachi, there will be a third Elijah. The number of divine completeness. There will be a third Elijah to come to prepare the way for Jesus Christ at His second coming. And in order to see that, let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. And remembering 
about the laws and statutes of Moses. And the ministry of Elijah, the law and the prophets. When Jesus Christ summarized the law, he told us, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Excuse me, let's skip down a little bit. Let's go to chapter, or verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses... And they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Does anybody know how, how many years that, it, that breaks down into, that count of days? About three and a half. About three and a half. It'll be important here in a minute. These two witnesses, these two witnesses beginning at the start of the Great Tribulation, three and a half years before the return Jesus Christ will begin their ministry. The two witnesses. Let's continue on reading, and we'll go ahead and read through verse 12, and we'll get the whole thing in before we start breaking it down. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, prophetically a day for a year principle, three and a half years. And shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they, sh they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. These two witnesses, these two witnesses, a lot of ink has been spilt about the identity of these two witnesses. A lot of argument, a lot of speculation. My goal here today in this lesson is not to positively, absolutely identify these two witnesses, 
But to give you a conceptual framework, a conceptual framework that you'll be able to identify them when their ministry begins. You see, with prophecy, especially in the book of Revelation, you have to learn to think conceptually. Each symbol, each figure presented to you in this apocalyptic writing is often a symbol. And it's like a ball of yarn that you just keep pulling the strings and keep pulling it apart and you keep finding more and more and more that it's trying to convey to you. And so it is with the two witnesses. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. It can refer to things that happen in the visible and in the invisible. It can happen to types and archetypes. It can happen with symbols. But I just want to take these two witnesses, this Moses and Elijah, if you will, and let's see what we can pull apart from this ball of yarn that so many people have worked on. These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands of Zechariah chapter 4. I believe that they are the Moses and Elijah of Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, which represent the law and the prophets. Could be that there is a meaning of Israel and Judah in there as well. Moses and Elijah representing the two ministries of Moses and Elijah. Let me tell you, teams that have a person that has the prophetic gift, the prophetic gift to boldly proclaim the Word of God, one type of witness. And the second type of witness, a studious type, type that really digs and studies into law. You can really learn a lot from contrasting or unifying those two tendencies. A sort of two witnesses, if you will, to the Scripture. The olive trees and the lampstands that we're talking about here provide the anointing for the two witnesses to testify and to preach and to make their judgment known in the face of overwhelming odds. The two witnesses have the same God-given powers according to the text that Moses and Elijah had. Moses and Elijah, of the law and the prophets, stand as witnesses against the wickedness of the new world order. And indeed, they act to condemn it. The two witnesses act to condemn this new world order. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verses 6 through 7, and we'll see what kind of condemnation we have here. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning at verse 6. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. 
So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. So we see that the two witnesses stand in judgment on that which is to be put to death. The New World Order, the beast system, the religion of the false prophet. They are condemning, they're acting as God's word, His witnesses, His two witnesses, His spirit and His word, His law and prophecy. He's standing as two witnesses against the evils of the system in which we are finding ourselves. The two witnesses stand to condemn, stand to condemn the old world order, the new world order, right before the last trumpet, right before the seventh trumpet, and the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to declare and to institute His kingdom upon this earth. And when these two prophets, these two witnesses, when they're killed and left in the street, the people rejoice, they drink wine, they make merry. How many times have we seen within churches in America people putting away the law and the prophets, throwing away the Old Testament, saying that I'm a New Testament Christian, that that Old Testament was for somebody else. It's not for us today. But the law and the prophets... Without the law and the prophets, will you recognize our Lord and Savior when He returns? What will stand to condemn the old world order? I'm calling it the old world order. For us now, it's the new world order. What will stand to condemn them before a holy and righteous God? It will be the witness of Scripture. It will be the Scripture that judges. It will be the Scripture that acts as witness against the evil that we see filling our land and indeed our world. So the hope is this. That Jesus Christ... came all those years ago, Bethlehem of Judea, His first advent. But there will be a second advent. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is returning. And He's returning with an army. And He will put an end to the corruption. He'll put an end to the immorality. Put an end to all the false gods like a consuming fire, like Elijah's fire, like the fire that will consume the enemies. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is returning. 
and all those who stand opposed to him in that day will be consumed by a burning fire. And Satan will be locked away for a thousand years and we will reign and rule with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for that, all praise, all loud, all honor, all glory, go to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you.